Thank you for listening to this Belly Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we go belly up, so we made it our name. And we're still here. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, we're live. Well, you want a podcast for one minute or fucking 30 minutes, Dan, right? I see you out there and the other podcasters all booing you. You're 30 up. You're still going full tilt. This is how we win. This is Uncut Gems on In the Can. That's my family. Get the kids out of the house. You having a good time? Yes. This is me. This is how I win. KJ, it's game night. You should be stretching out. What is he, a coach? Nah, he's just a fucking crazy-ass Jew. All right. Well, I welcome a multiple produced screenwriter in film and television and a former development executive. Uh, You've been involved in 17 produced feature films. You're also the host of Movies I Love That No One Talks About podcast. Fresh off resurfacing his swimming pool, I welcome Dan Benmore to the show. Dan, how are you? (laughs) What's up, dude? <laughs> yeah, Doing man. well these days? I mean, you, you, you we're in a pandemic and there's a bunch of societal issues going on, but are you holding up? Are you writing? What are you working on these days? Yeah, this, this is for this is very comfortable for writers. We're very used to this. We basically, this is what our lives are like normally. So That's we're true. like, oh, your hand has been forced. Yeah. Well, that's great. Uh, so th- yeah, we're going to talk Uncut Gems today, uh, which is a, a 2019 film released by A24. Uh, I'll, I'll do a quick plot summary. So in 2010, Ethiopian Jewish miners retrieve a rare black opal from the Whalo mine in Africa. Shifting to 2012, gambling addict Howard Ratner runs KMH, a jewelry store in the New York City Diamond District. Howard's struggling to pay off all his gambling debts, including a debt he owes to his loan shark brother-in-law, Arno. Meanwhile, NBA star Kevin Garnett becomes addicted to the alluring power of the gym and Howard finds himself pulled in every direction as his daily hustle starts to fall apart. So I, I, I had four shots of espresso. I, <laughs> I'm not, I don't have like a Gucci shirt or an Armani shirt, but I feel this is the closest thing I could find this like little flowery yeah. shirt. I would have put it on. Um, I'm feeling a little bit like Howard right now doing this podcast. This yeah. movie made 50 million against a $19 million budget. So it's the biggest success A24 has had so far in, in their entire history, which is great. Thank God, man. Yeah, let's keep A24 going. Exactly. Um, so what, you know, tell me your general thoughts on this movie. When, when you, you suggested it as one of many that we we do, uh, it's a recent movie, but I feel like it's already a little bit of a, a classic in terms of just the genre. Uh, but, but tell me your yeah. thoughts on Uncut Gems. So look, I mean, I'm, I'm an anxious, depressive, you know, gambling, loving, 
sports-loving Jew. So when they made this movie, they couldn't have made a movie more dear to my heart than this movie. <laughs> and I, I called, uh, I was talking to my best friend I've known since I was like, you know, in sixth grade or something. And I was like, does it surprise you that I deeply, deeply related to this movie? And he's like, no. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've, you know, friends of mine here in LA from before, from before I had, now I have a daughter, but I used to uh, love to go gamble. And I've, I've been at Commerce Casino at three in the morning, basically taking my last hundred dollars, putting it, in, you know, they give you the rack and just putting the rack in without even looking at my cards playing poker. You know, I've done stuff like that. So this to me felt made perfect sense. I completely understood it. Like, I think it's a, it's a divisive movie. Surprisingly, I mean, it's obviously critically acclaimed, but if you talk to just regular people about it, you will find just as many people who say, like my father-in-law, for example, I was like, what do you think of it? He said, I couldn't wait for them to kill him. He said, I was so happy when he died. I cheered, damn, damn. you know, and uh, I think for, for like regular moviegoers, it's very much a coin flip if they're going to either love it or hate it. But this is not a movie you're going to be halfway on. Nobody's going to see this movie and be like, I thought it was okay. Yeah, I agree. It, it is very divisive. And we have like a, it got dropped on Netflix. And so a bunch of people, the, I guess the common movie folk are watching it. And I think that a lot of them, you're seeing a lot of hate of it on Twitter right now, because I, I think it's a little bit mismarketed. It happens a lot these days. These trailers kind of portray one thing. I think the trailer is accurate in the sense it's an anxiety ridden, you know, yeah. crime gambling addict drama. But I think they're expecting more of a sports movie because of KG's involvement. Right. So it, it is weird that that dichotomy there. But I agree. I mean, it's I think the one throw line you hear, though, is that it's like it's like taking an Adderall and then, you know, having to sit like in a waiting room or something like you're just your foot's tapping the whole time. The Safdies are notably good at building that anxiety with their direction and scripts. And I mean, this is just right in their wheelhouse. Um, it's a great the, in the theater movie, too. Like, for sure. You know, if, you, if you're fortunate enough to catch it in the theater, like you it almost becomes a communal experience where like you're looking at the people next to you and you're seeing yeah. them have the same physical reaction of discomfort where they're grabbing the chair and they're just like putting their hand in their head you know it's yeah. like, it's, a, it's a movie that you cannot just you know you can't be doing the laundry while you watch this movie yeah exactly and, and so that's when you people watch at home i think that they're often multitasking I, yeah. that's why the netflix experience to me is tough because people don't really dedicate like what it takes to watch a movie which is a lot i mean it does take your full attention but this one's not something you casually put on for sure um so let's talk about the writer directors josh and benny safty they're 33 and 35 years old respectively they're kind of wow. the new york wonder kids you know they, yeah. they started out making short films their cans telluride film festival darlings uh, previous movies that that they've done that may or may not have been seen by you. I, I've seen a Daddy Long Legs, um, Heaven Knows What, and Good Time is kind of their breakout with Robert Pattinson. Right. And so, you know, what do you what did you know about the Safties before this? Were you a Safty fan or because so, no? I mean, honestly, to my great shame, as somebody who's who you know works in the business and stuff, I um, I heard a lot about Good Time. Good Time was very well received and made a lot of noise, and and it was it was a movie that within the business, you know, you heard it mentioned a lot. Right. And, and I think it's sort of on a business level that put them in a place and they've, they've said this in interviews that put them in a place where they could go get Sandler. Um, but you know, I think that what's cool about it is I, I do think that people will go and I mean, myself included, will go back and watch their older movies because you can see 
they're doing a certain type of thing, and I think that thing is relatively consistent in their movies, from what I've what I've understood, you know, following their careers. For sure, and Daddy Long is actually on the Criterion Channel right now. If you have access to that, uh, yeah, I mean, they they make these frenetic, frantic, talky movies set in New yeah. York. They're from New York, New York natives. Um, when you watch them if doing interview, you actually understand why their dialogue is like this because they yeah. constantly talk over their time. Yeah. Yeah, and they're they're just outgoing, like their their minds work like very frenetic and the way they make points and everything. Uh, I watched an interview with them on Criterion and they cite a bunch of movies that, that have influenced them, one of which is Mikey and Mickey, the, the 1970s movie with John Cassavetes. Sure. Uh, and, and it's a like a two-hander where it's just like that. It's just two guys in New York, like out all night, you know, right. it's an over the night movie, just talking, and and so that, I mean, it made sense to me why their history of what they like ended up influencing what they do now. Um, so yeah, I'm a huge, huge Safdie fan. When this movie got announced, I, I, I am not Jewish. Uh, I am, however, a gambler. So I yeah. saw it, and, and I was like, oh, they're mixing like real life NBA games with this like fucking right. fast talking character. Like I'm so in. Uh, could not wait to see it. Saw it on Christmas. You know, it was released the day after Christmas. So I was part of that audience experience. Um, you're just a huge safety fan. And, uh, and so this, this movie to me lived up to the billing surprised to see it snubbed by the Oscars. You know, what, what were you, what were your feelings on that? That, that, that it well, had no I mean, love at the Oscars. Look, it's, you know, the, you figure the, the Oscar voters, it's not all people in their, like, let's say late twenties to like early forties, which I think is the audience for this movie. I think if you're in your sixties, this movie, just in terms of film language, is just too much. It's too much. I mean, it's almost too much for us. And we're raised on a much more hyperkinetic kind of film language. But if you, if the, the movies that you grew up on were that sort of older style where they're a little bit more deliberate, and then you've watched gradually as movies have become faster and faster and faster, and then you get to this movie, this movie is so overwhelming. I think it feels also, you know, it's also very profane. I mean, we'll, we'll I'm sure at some point quote some of the lines and, it's uh it's a it's almost like a disreputable movie and i say that in a in a way that is a positive for me but i think for maybe for the academy voter votership i i it's just not their kind of movie necessarily for the entire body of the academy i would i would guess yeah you're right it's something we face all the time when a movie like this comes out and people love it but other people don't get into it I, I, but then you look at a movie like wolf of wall street for example who is, yeah. who is equally profane and yeah but it's scorsese so it's like oh right. that's what scorsese does yeah i think they will end up getting there you know in two movies from now or something where it's just they're a little bit more established and you know then they kind of like get that recognition i agree I, and, and i hope so it's one, they're they're one of those filmmaking pairs that now i'll kind of see whatever they do well, what's cool about it is like if you listen to like I listened to they had like an hour long interview talking about this movie and this movie they've been wanting to make basically since their first movie. And every single time that they've made a movie, they've gone and said, maybe we can go make Uncut Gems now. And they've put so much into it. It's almost like it feels like their magnum opus. So I'm really curious what they're going to do next, because, you know, sometimes you have that one project that you're so passionate about. And they they said that they wrote like 160 drafts of the script and. At various points, I think it was going to be Jonah Hill and Sasha Baron Cohen and Harvey Keitel and all these different people were going to play the Sandler role. And you think, man, you fucking finally, you went and you did it. You made the movie. Now what do you do? You know? Yeah, they got their golden goose. And so there's no clear outline for what they do from now. Uh, well, I mean, I feel like 
we should do like three or four minutes on Sandler right now. I mean, sure. this is a Sandler centric vehicle that it, and the, they sent it to him in the late, like late aughts in 2009. His, his, uh, I think his manager got the script and just never gave it to him. Yes. Uh, uh, I guarantee you that's what happened. Right. And, and so there's no, there, he didn't even know about it. And then they, they spend a decade doing other stuff, trying to get it made. He finally ends up in, this film. I mean, what do you think of Sandler's performance in this film and, and kind of just Adam Sandler's you know, film arc? What's really interesting about it is like, it's the voice that he's doing, right? He's like, KJ, it's KJ. It's like this really irritating voice. And when you first hear it, it's not compelling in the moment, which is to say that, like, if you compare this to like Michael Clayton or something, right? Michael Clayton is immediately compelling. And the, what Clooney is, the choice that Clooney has made is, is, cool and interesting and you sort of it's you gravitate to it right away but with this movie he's doing this thing that is almost caricature it's like on the on the on the edge of caricature and over time you get used to it and then you realize that it really fits into the world that he lives in and by the end of it you're sort of you've retaught your brain how to process his performance and you're totally with him but it's a very difficult thing when he's doing because he's making a lot of big choices. Like he's got the teeth and the way he speaks and the way he moves. And there's the one part where um, he starts crying. Like uh, <laughs> Julia Fox is trying to cheer him up. And, and he's like, yeah, she shows up <laughs> her the ass tattoo. And, and he's like, everything I do goes wrong. And I don't know. And it's like, it's he's playing it straight, but it is funny. Yeah. And that's not easy to do because it could be very easily just goofy, but it's not goofy. And um, yeah, it's a really challenging thing that he does. And I do think that it's one of those things that you can kind of take it for granted. But if you don't have him and you don't have him doing it exactly the way he's doing it, then it's not as unique as it is. Because there's like a, there's a pretty obvious way to play this role. If you're, you know, you could come in and do this role in his normal voice, not doing anything weird with his appearance, not doing anything weird with his body. And he's just sort of a salesman, and that's it. But that's not what he's doing. He's doing something different. Yeah, I mean, the, the Safdies notably spend a lot of time on the in the Diamond District, you know, on 47th Street in New York. And their dad used to work on it. So that inspired all this. And they've followed a lot of these kind of people, these uh, these lifetime salesmen on in the district. But I feel like Sandler, it's well documented. Every seven years, he yeah. does something like this. You know, he does like a punch truck glove. Yep. With Paul Thomas Anderson, then he does like funny people with Judd Apatow, the Meyerowitz stories, Noah Baumbach, uh, and, and now this. And everyone's like, oh, wow, Sandler, he can really act. He's not just doing like those shitty Happy Madison comedies where he goes out to you know Naples, Italy or whatever and shoots a Netflix you know, movie. And it's basically a vacation. I mean, every, he, he even has admitted this. Like, he's like, yeah, dude, like, of course, that's why this comedy is set in like some fucking amazing locale. Uh, but to me, like, he's really good at playing this type of character. And that's really, if you like look at those characters in those movies where he's quote unquote good, it's still kind of the same character to some degree. Uh, you know, if you ask Sandler to do like something Daniel Day-Lewis does, like Daniel Plainview, it would be an SNL skit. Uh, but, but this, he's able to do it as an SNL skit, like you said, a characterization, but it works. And I well, think it's you're important that the movie has humor, right? The movie sure. humor is part of the world of the story. And even though the, the stakes of the movie are very serious, it's a movie where people joke around and it's like this New York kind of like edgy humor thing. So his natural comedic talent is not at odds with the dramatic kind of energy of the movie. 
without a doubt. And and and, and the, the Safety, I listened to their uh, director commentary, and they talk about in multiple points of the movie, you know, Howard, he's got to be liked. He's always apologizing to people. He's always, you know, when people are get mad at Arno, for example, when Gooey is mad, he comes to Arno's defense, even though Arno is literally like holding him hostage for money. And he like is always saying like, oh, don't be mad at him. Like, you know, be mad at me. And he's just, yeah. that's his character is that, that, you know, and something that they tried to emphasize throughout the, so you cared about him. You know, you didn't think like, this guy's well, just yeah, like he, he, tr he basically tricks Gooey into giving up like $200,000. And Gooey just like came to the auction just to like, <laughs> just to be supportive. So he could and his son could get a KG autograph too. It's an unbelievable betrayal. And, uh, and, and then he's putting him in the car and he's like, don't be mad at me. Mm -hmm. He's like, Gooey, don't be mad at me. And it's, it's almost like a childlike moment. And right. Um, right. You, you feel for him. Yeah, it's, it's, it's still, he still has empathy. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's just a fantastic performance. And he really makes the movie go. Without him and without that performance, like you don't have a movie. And uh, I, I can't fathom. Sacha Baron Cohen, I can kind of see because I could see him doing a similar bit. Mm. Uh, but I don't, I don't, I can't fathom anyone else now. The one, it's one of those performances that now that you've seen it completed, it's like no one else could do this. And so that that kind of me is to me a mark of a generational performance. Yeah, no, it's it's a special movie. I mean, this movie is going to stand the test of time. People are going to still watch this movie in twenty years. I think so too. It, it really reminds me of the seventies type movies. You know, those yeah. like Mikey Nicky is a great example. It's like a movie that someone discovers in thirty years on Criterion. But now, with the way that Twitter and social media exists, like it, it got memed, so it exists out there in the ether of meme culture. Um, this is how I went. Like I sent that many yeah, a time to my I, friends. I um I did the Friends of Eddie Coyle on my show, and that is about Robert Mitchum plays this like beat down small time loser criminal guy. Yeah. And the only reason I found out about it was because um, Bill Hader was saying that it was one of the things that influenced him. I, I think it was, I think I heard some interview with him saying that. And then it kept coming up. Like I kept hearing people that I respected being like, oh, the friends of Eddie Coyle. And that's the only reason I watched it. And then I was, became obsessed with it. And I yeah. think this will be similar. I think this will be a movie that people who other people will really respect will be influenced by it and will talk about it. And then it will be discovered by future generations and it'll hold up. I hope so. I mean, it, it, and, you know, let's not talk. Like, it's also got some, you know, intense film things going on here. You got shot by Darius Kanji, who's like a, you know, a veteran yeah. cinematographer. I mean, like, and they thought the stars <laughs> are like, yeah, but we got Darius Kanji, who's like we've looked up yeah. to since we were watching movies when we were six and seven. I mean, talk about yeah, talk about Kanji. Yeah, Darius Darius Kanji is like top five cinematographers like on planet Earth. So the fact that he shot this movie is pretty cool. <laughs> I'm sure it was pretty interesting for the Safties. No doubt. They just said they basically, speaking of basketball terms, they just gave him the ball. They were like, I mean, they had a general, they like to frame their shots right, and everything. Yeah. Whatever but they, but he was like, yeah. I mean, he was like, boys, boys, I've been doing that. He sort of alphaed them a little bit, but it's on level. You just have to let that yeah. happen. And, and it, he shot it. He yeah, leaned like, into the 70s thing. It's Roger Deakins. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's like, let's shoot, like, let's shoot this as a wonder. You're like, Roger, whatever you want to do, man. Yeah. Just, hey, you do you, Roger. Yeah. You're pretty yeah. good, I think. Uh, he he uh, he had a lot of long lenses here. You know, he he like he did a lot of stuff that was very seventies influenced, um, and stuff that he didn't do, for example, in in Evita, Funny Games and Seven. So you know, it's it, it, apparently he he references this movie as a movie that he can watch many times, even after he's uh, photographed it. So he, he like cons consistently has gone back to this. Um, so that's you know fantastic. 
um, the, the deep cut into the diamond district. So uh, the, in the direct uh, in the director's commentary, they were talking about how in all their research, they learned these little tricks in the trade. For example, when KG comes into the into KMA and uh, Howard immediately says, like, well, let me throw your uh, let me throw your earrings into the cleaner. And he says that everyone does that because yeah. they want to get yeah. the jewelry off the customer so that they feel naked and want to buy more. And right. then also it gives you a chance as the jeweler to examine yeah. it and sort of talk shit about it. So that was uh, another interesting little component right. there. I love the um, the guy. There's the guy he goes to see who's like a real jeweler, not an actor. That they go, He goes and sees him and he gives him KG's ring and basically says, okay, hold this for a couple of days. I want this much money back for it and we'll do this much vig on it. And that guy totally feels like a real guy. And one of my favorite parts of the movie is just a really small moment where he comes back to get like the, the, the ring, but then he trades him another ring or whatever. And um, the guy tells him, "Hey, if you're not if you're not back Friday, the ring's mine." And he's like, "If I'm not back Friday, I'm dead." So, and he kind of looks at him. He's like, "Hey, what's going on, Booby? You okay?" Yeah. And it's he's like the you movie. know that their interaction the is so businesslike, and that probably they've interacted a thousand times before. And for him to stop and actually say, "Hey, are you okay?" It means that what's going on is very, very serious because Sandler's character clearly lives this lifestyle all the time. So for the guy who also probably knows what that lifestyle is to really kind of try to stop and check in with him and be like, hey, man, are you all right? It's like he's really spinning out of the rails, you know. For sure. Um, is there any you know, trivia that, that, that pops into mind? I, I know that, you know, uh, one thing that I liked to know was the fact that this has the seventh most F-bombs in cinema history. Uh, with 408, <laughs> which is three a minute. So that that is cinema history. Yeah. I mean, it, it doubled wow. Wolf of Wall Street, to give you some context. I mean, the, the classics That's like the Pulp Fictions of the World and all of that are in the 200s. This is in yeah. 408, which is next level stuff. Wow. And honestly, you kind of get just like lured into the language, so you're not even yeah, thinking you about it. you get desensitized to it. Right, you don't even right. think about it, totally. Right, so I, I was surprised to yeah, see I, that. I was looking for I was looking for quotes from this movie, and every quote is 17 F-bombs in it, but you know, it's just the way they speak. <laughs> and uh, they rewrote this movie several times, as you, as you referenced, in, uh, in part around the NBA player. They were in a feature. Uh, Amari Stoudemire was one of the first uh, figures. They were Knicks fans, so they wanted Amari in there. And then Kobe Bryant, then Joel Embiid. Uh, then Joel Embiid apparently was out because they yep. can't have an active player in, in, uh, when during the season in shooting a movie. Uh, so they were sad to see Amari go because they were Knicks fans. And but with each character, with each NBA player, they had to restructure the script as kind of the meaning of what the gym means to that player. So I thought that was interesting how this rewrite was significant. It wasn't just changing a name of a character, it was changing some of the themes. No, I mean this this is so you figure they did 160 drafts. So, you know, even for me on a little tiny movie that I might do, that let's say like is a two million dollar movie. If I'm the sole writer on that movie, I probably, if that movie gets produced, I probably will end up doing like 30 to 40 drafts. Um, and so I, and that's like a little small movie that doesn't have a million, you know, famous people in it. So you can see why, I mean, this is the level of work that it takes to make a movie like this with all the great actors that are in it, each one of whom I'm, I guarantee you, they did a couple drafts with each one of these actors, like Keith Stanfield, um, uh, Dina Menzel, I mean, they, they have uh, a pretty loaded cast, so I'm sure that many, many times this was rewritten, and each time especially rewritten for that particular actor and so on. For sure. Um, Ginny Sachs playing KG's manager in the film is actually Joel Embiid's manager. 
so that that she uh, yeah. was part of the process with with Embiid, and so they kept her on because they just liked her her chi. Um, you know, what what other things did you learn about this film and the research that that you didn't know before? Um, I think you know, I think to me, and we're going to talk more about this guy, but the guy who plays, I think his name is Phil, the uh, the heavy. Yeah, yeah, Phil. His name is Keith William Richards. Never acted before. Just some guy. And he's like the best. He's like the, my favorite part of the movie. Everything he does is amazing. And uh, they are just kind of wild men dudes. And that this is like a thing of theirs where they'll just find someone and be like, oh, I like this person. And the person will be like, I never acted before. And they're like, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> just throw him in. It's like a key part of the movie. If he's bad, the movie doesn't work. It's a huge, I mean, it goes to why I think filmmakers can relate to this because making movies is a massive gamble and you're constantly taking like existential risk where it's like, Hey, if we cast the wrong guy and the lead of this movie or one of the leads, the movie is not going to work. The movie's going to be bad. And it's like, that's, it's a, you take those kind of decisions all the time. Yeah. Uh, that's a great point. And, and I think that they, they've established themselves now as having an eye for talent. I mean, for what character can play and what the capabilities of the actor or non-actor is, and if they'll work as the character, I mean, it, to, to do something like that, to make your basically your main villain. I mean, your your main, at least the, the heavy, the one that has the, the violent aspect, someone that's never acted before is a crazy risk, but it pays off in dividends here. Uh, well, I'm sure we'll talk about him a little bit later because he does have like an interesting history uh, and all of that. But um, so what, what's, and before we get into categories, what's the most ridiculous bet you've ever made as a, as a, as a gambling addict? Oh man. How did you win, basically? You know, what what was your Howard Ratner moment? Well, I mean, so you gotta you have to put it in, in context, right? So when I used to gamble, I was not I was very poor. So <laughs> where sure. Howard is is risking two hundred thousand dollars or whatever it is, to me, when it's like my la my last hundred dollars, it's the equivalent of him risking the two hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> and I, I know that I've I mean, literally when I was just totally like flat broke, like I've I've gone to the casino, done like a hundred dollar bluff, won like four hundred dollars, you know that kind of thing. I've done that, and I've also done the opposite, where I've <laughs> where I've sniffed out a hundred dollar bluff, and I basically had nothing and called and still won. Um, so you know, every once in a while, you get one of those as a gambler where you're like, you can't lose, and that's why you keep gambling, which is very yeah. Bad. Yeah, it's it's you, you want to you want to chase that you throw good money after bad. You know that's that's the the chronic fallacy of the sunk yes. cost. And uh, but you know, hey, it's fun. I my thing with gambling is like I'm not a big card player, but I do love sports gambling. Um, I just kind of love just small bets. I like the prop bets on little elements of. And that's why the parlays here inter interested me so much. Uh, never been more sure, hyped yeah. to see an opening tip in a game ever than watching this movie. Um, but you know, I, I think yeah. that. It is like people talk about the lost money or whatever in gambling, but you're paying for that rush. Like even if you lose it, like you're you're paying. You know, the lost yeah. money is that weird rush you get in making something more intense than it otherwise would have been. And Howard's a rush addict. You know, this is how he get. This is his juice. This is like in the heat. You know, the yeah. I'm gonna make a ridiculous movie reference here, but you have Sizemore's character says the action is the juice, and you know, lo just loves robbing totally. banks. This is Howard's like. This is how he gets his yeah. job. Same thing. Um, so yeah, yeah, unless you have anything else on Uncut Gems, we can move into the categories. Let's do it. All right. So the first category of who gets the most buckets in this movie, which is our category for best actor. We are uh, also a sports website, so we have a lot of basketball themed categories, as you you will note. 
Um, I, I mean, the answer is probably Sandler. Uh, but but I mean, like, what, what did you have for for this category? So I I had Keith William Richards, the guy who plays Phil, and his argument. So he he slaps Adam Sandler in the jewelry store. That's like the first interaction. Then on the street, he hits him in the throat, and he tells him, "You're lucky. There's people out here." Then Sandler follows them, and he punches him, and he you know Sandler goes in the water fountain. Basically, Phil's entire role is like the trailer of the movie, and and then he dangles him out the office window after he they, he tries he does the double down bet. And then he kills him. So basically, every time Phil appears in the movie, it's the equivalent of like hitting like a deep three. Like he's he does something crazy that ratchets up the conflict. His physical manifestations of threat are how the movie shows you that it's escalating. Because the very beginning of the movie, it's just a slap, and it's it's obviously like, you know, I think uh, Lakeith is like, "Yo, are you okay, Howard? Like, what the fuck's going on, man?" Yeah, and. Uh, and then it just keeps getting worse and worse. And the threat of like lethal danger is clearly there. And he implies it. Like that's why when he hits him in the throat and he says, you're lucky there's people here and Sandler chokes for a while, it's the movie foreshadowing for you. And so when he kills him in the end, you know, it's, it's a surprise, but in a way it really shouldn't be a surprise because it's like, he's been pretty much telling you that he's going to do this the whole movie. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's screenwriting 101, you know, it's set up some payoffs. Like, In fact, like earlier in the film, like, you know, I noted in this recent rewatch, very beginning, they're getting on the elevator after they get kicked out by Katie's bodyguards. And, and um, right. the, the key character tells him, uh, you know, you're going to be laughing when I'm shoveling fucking dirt on your body, you know. And, and so he, he goes ahead and tells yeah, him, like, if everybody in the movie, he's going to delivery. Yeah. And he watches them as the his delivery door is so closes. Good. He I think that's the value of casting a non-actor. Because if you get an actor, certain actors, it can be tough for them to credibly portray that sort of threat because they're, they really aren't pure actors, right? Like that's their thing. They're, they grew up to be an actor. They went to you know, acting school. They love acting. They're like intellectuals. This guy, I think, has like kind of this sort of background in real life a little bit. I, I mean, it's sort of, I mean, you tell me if you found that in the research, but uh, I know that he sort of lightly referenced something like that in interviews. And when he says that, you believe it. And it's not like a movie acting moment. Like you just believe that he's this guy and he's really telling that and he's really going to carry through. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I think someone else could overact that scene, you know, do like a Goodfellas impression or yeah. like what they envision a gangster being right. like. But he just has this sort of calm, menacing, low gravelly voice that is unlike any other heavy you've seen. Yeah. It's unlike um, any other heavy. So yeah, I, I, I my my pick, it, yeah, I, I went non Sandler too, just because that was the obvious pick. I, I, Dina Menzel in this movie, you know, playing his wife Dina is fantastic. I, I think that oh, she yeah. and his sons are kind of what makes you care about Howard, uh, aside from the, the emotional elements of the Howard character. Like if you if he doesn't have stakes to him, you don't care what happens to him. If he's just a bachelor. So uh, Dina Menzel is notably from that area of New York. She's from Long Island. So she asked the staff, he's like on day one, how much Long Island do they want in the accent? And so I, I just love those little elements about how she's kind of a naturalized character. Um, the way she comes out of the, the play and sees him in the trunk, like uh, maybe another actor might've overacted that as well. And just had this crazy reaction to him climbing naked out, yeah. but she just shrugs it off. Yeah. Cause it's probably the fucking fifth time Howard's climbed out of his trunk naked. <laughs> um, so I just think that that's she's like an underrated yeah. part that drives the emotional element. Uh, so I wanted to shout out Dina Menzel for her performance as Dina. 
for sure. Uh, so six man slash woman award makes the most of their role with limited screen time. Who you got for your six man or woman? So I got two. I got, um, first of all, John Amos, who was in the movie for, I think, seven seconds. This is the <laughs> perfect definition of this like, Hey, you got to see this guy. Yeah, he uh, he's he's like a famous actor, John Amos. And you're like, is John Amos going to be in this He's movie? a fucking and legend. He just opens the door, and it is John <laughs> Amos. And he, and he opens the door, and he has like one line, and that's it. Why is he in the movie? What was the... What a flex it, by the Sabbath, It's like right? so... <laughs> Really? Yeah. yeah. I also I also want to nominate um, Sandler's son, the son who's like basically the smaller version of him, mm. who like every time he talks, he's like, he's like, yeah, I got a bet with Benny at school. So I got 20 bucks for, you know, and like, he's like, I'm going to double that. <laughs> and he totally notices that Sandler like obviously has like another woman that's living in this apartment and calls him out on it. And, um, I just love that you so clearly see that the son is like the miniature version of him. I thought that was great. Yeah, the the kid that played the son too is apparently the son of a real Diamond District uh, owner of a so jewelry shop. So they, he he's like really part of the thing. And and uh, they said that you know basically like every time you like he's actually shitting a lot in the movie, which I thought was funny. The fact he said that first fa uh, FaceTime whenever. Like he FaceTimes his son and shows him the KG ring. He's actually supposed to be pooping. And it's just like little elements like that you hear from director's commentary. That's um, funny. <laughs> but yeah. And another Howard moment where he's like, don't talk shit about him. He's a fucking legend. You know, like when when uh, the son's like, what a dick. Because he doesn't let right. him use his toilet. So that, that's great too. Uh, my, my nomination is, I mean, he might be in the movie a little too much. But Lakeith Stanfield is Damani. He's just choose the scenery sure. I, and i'm a right. huge huge lakeith stanfield fan i mean i think you'd be hard pressed to find anyone that isn't but like you know back to it to atlanta right. you know and then what what he does in every little bit role he is in a movie it's just he's always like when he shows up in a scene yeah. like you just watch what he's doing he shows up and anytime that you have a sandler damani tete-a-tete it's just like that's just that must have been so much fun to write if you knew you had a guy like lakeith coming in and playing that role uh, and so he can do a character like this. Yeah. He can do, I mean, think about what he does in Get Out, where he's playing like two different characters and he, yeah. he can really do whatever. Wildly so, different, I, yeah. Right. I, I mean, I, I mean, if, if Lakeith were a stock, right, I'd have bought every share at the IPO. That's just how I feel about him. But um, so right. how do we feel about KG, you know, like in, in his performance in this movie? He's a, there's not many good basketball love, player performances. You know, I, I think that, again, it's just their, their cleverness when it comes to casting because. I've listened to interviews with KG, and he is this. In, he's more intense in in real life, in a way, than he is in the movie. And arguably, he's like more kind of polite in the movie. That in real life, you do get a sense from him that he's like super intense, and that obviously fits really well for the movie. I mean, I think the best part is when he confronts him about basically taking advantage of the Ethiopian Jews, because then it really like calls out the race stuff, which is an important part of the story because it's like. Sandler is a white Jewish guy who loves gambling on a sport that's primarily played by black men. And, you know, it's sort of, in a way, it's like if there's a thematic resonance to it where he's basically saying, like, hey, you're taking advantage of these guys who are doing the actual work, you know, and you're paying them like pennies on the dollar. There's a whole other conversation we can have about like NBA owners and salaries. And I think there's like a lot of interesting stuff in terms of race and class and, and things like that that they kind of sneak in there. Yeah, that's kind of what makes the, the KG, the notable maniac on the court and off the court, is 
like the way that he connects with the gym on that personal visceral level where it's like his lucky, you know, his lucky rabbit's foot, you know, for games uh, is, is great. I mean, it, it really ended up working out. It was kind of like a, uh, the way it worked out and he ended up being casted as opposed to, I can't envision anyone else in this movie now. Um, interestingly, know, Amari, yeah. Amari is apparently has Jewish background too. So they they were going to work in right. the African Jew thing. Jew. Right, right. Yeah. So like they were going to work that in with Amari, you know, very specifically. But KG, I thought, slid in. It was excellent. I mean, I, I have no complaints about his performance. He's playing himself. He truly is. And like you said, maybe a little bit too nice. Yeah. But uh, I really, I really enjoy the KG performance. And, and honestly, might be the best basketball player performance in a film. I mean, what else is out there? Blue chips? You got yeah, Penny probably. and Shaq. I mean, like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah not, not a huge uh, competition on that one. Yeah, Kazam with Shaq. I mean, you know, the, the classic. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, maybe we'll do an episode on yeah. Kazam. That's that's an, that's an oldie but goodie. Um, <laughs> so ISO play, the single greatest scene uh, in the movie. I've got like five or six nominations here, and feel free to throw one in if I didn't catch it. Um, so KG, the first showroom scene, the Opal's arrival and the fish. Um, I've got mm -hmm. the school play showdown when he gets approached at the school right. play and has to dodge the heavies and yeah. goes into the car with Arno, that whole sequence. Uh, I've got the bidding war, uh, at the, uh, the auction, uh, which the yeah. Sakti say is the closest thing to the action set piece that they've got in the film and that they shot it right. as if it were like an Armageddon or something like the blowing yeah. up of the asteroid. Uh, the Howard emotional breakdown with Julia, which you mentioned the slobbery cry, the ass tattoo. You can't even get buried with me now, he says, which I think is a fantastic little touch. You mentioned the Jewish element of this. It's and, a huge part of it. Yeah. I mean, you can speak to this. I, I can't. Like, I, I didn't grow up Jewish. I'm not Jewish. So, like, I, I couldn't even speak to it. But I do know that the Saptis just said they wanted the Jewish elements to be like a superpower for Howard. Like, he is proudly Jewish. You know, he's not yeah. just happenstancely Jewish. He uses those elements as part of his, like, persona. So, like, well, yeah, you I mean, Passover Seder is like a huge part of the story. Right. <laughs> It's a, and they weave it in thematically also, you know, right. it's like they, he does, they do the, the plagues and stuff. And then because it's the Seder, Arno is there and they can't really, you know, get in each other's faces too much. Cause it's like a, the family's there. And, uh, you know, I mean, all, like there's a guy who, who <laughs> tells him like Shalom and he tells him, Oh, you're a Jew again. Welcome back. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Welcome know, back. Like, yeah. The, uh, you're a Jew again, Larry. Welcome back. <laughs> Jews. There are certain things like my dad for years, if if like somebody did something cool and they happen to be Jewish, my dad would make sure to tell me. It's like, yeah, you know that guy's a Jew. Like we Jews love to claim other Jews that have done something cool. And there's a certain yeah, I think there's a certain type of Jew that's like, Yeah, you know, it somehow connects everything back to Jews and Israel and yeah. He's he's in there. That's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, that's great insight. Like, I wouldn't have been able to pick up on that. Um, I've got KG and Howard in his office. This this is how I win speech. Uh, and then I've got the casino intercut with Howard watching Celtics Game 7. And, and that that, that right. kind of climax scene. Is, is there anything that I missed? Yeah, I have uh, in between your last two. So I think when he decides that he's going to double down the bet, right? And he goes, he calls Julia Fox. He tells her, hey, go to the other window. I'm going to pass you the money outside the building. There's the there's the wild shot, you know, looking down of the two of them as he's going to pass her from one window to the other window. And he goes to give her the money. And he tells her, and obviously it's a very crude line, but I think it's actually really important. He tells her, I'm going to fuck the living shit out of you when he gives <laughs> her the money. Yeah. And as, cr as crude as the line is, 
you actually realize in that moment that she is the only person who he actually loves because she's kind of like him. Like they're both crazy and she genuinely understands him. Like he's not, it's not like he's pretty much everybody else that he's interacting with, he's lying to. Yeah. And she's kind of the only person that he's able to be honest with. So when he's, it's not, you sort of get at a certain, even I think even in that line, that it's not just about lust between them. And earlier in the movie, he tries to like, you know, he, he gets mad at her. He essentially calls her a whore. Like he tells his wife that she meant nothing to him. But then when you get to that moment, you sort of realize like, oh, she's the only person that he's, he's his authentic self with. So he actually like genuinely loves her. Like it's not just a purely lust relationship between them. She ends up being really critical to what happens in the end of the movie. So I think that moment to me was the best part of the movie. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. I didn't even consider that. I mean, and, and Julia is that they wanted to make sure they didn't just do the sh- the sugar sugar daddy, sugar, yeah. you know, like sort of relationship. Like they didn't want to do it stereotypically. They wanted to show that, like you said, it's not just lust sometimes and that there's a legitimate connection between these two people and they rely on each other for different elements of their lives. So yeah. that, that I thought was kind of a, a reversal of that relationship. She really yes. does love him. She's not just in it for the money. As evidenced yeah, yeah. by her turning down the really rich fucking guy, the Mohegan Sun. Right. And I mean, when she does the tattoo, for example, you sort of think like she's an idiot, basically. And like, it's this sort of superficial thing. And he's given her an apartment. But yeah, but I think her, he's like, hey, I got you a helicopter. Go to this casino. Here's like 200 grand in cash. Put this bet down. She's like, got it. I'm in. Let's do it. And she doesn't ask any questions. She's not like, are you sure? Like, why? Like. She just does, she does it. So like they, they have a connection on a yeah. deeper level. Uh, well, oh, so, so which of these scenes is your favorite? Like if you had to show, I always think of it like if you like show the one scene to evidence the movie, like this is what this movie is, which, what's your favorite pick? Honestly, I, I, st- I think it's the moment when you realize that he's going to take the money and bet it again. He's solved everything, he can get out of this. There's no reason for him to do it. He could just give them the money. He'll be safe. Everything will be great. Yep. And he says, no, I got I to gotta put it down again. And he's so excited about it, too. I know. He's like, it's a feeling. We're feeling it. I'm feeling it. You're feeling it. We're, they don't know. They don't know about you, KG. And, and you sort of get, again, if you're a gambler, you tap into that because we all feel that. So, you know, we all have moments where we're like, oh, man, you know what? I'm going to put like 300 bucks on the Lions. I know they're like two and 14, but I think next week. I got I this feeling. Week, they, you know, and, and like we understand that. But again, I think if you're if you're the regular person who doesn't really understand that mindset, that must be an incredibly frustrating moment for, the, for you as an audience member. So I think it's, it's a moment where if you don't like that moment in the movie, you're probably not going to like the movie. That's true. That is kind of a microcosm. I, yeah, I agree. I think KG Howard in his office. You know, like Howard equates the rush that he gets from gambling to KG's fire on the court. I think KG yeah. gets it too. Like you can see him start to realize that this guy's fucking crazy, but the right kind of fucking crazy. Like the crazy yeah. that he is, like the people yes. that he's been called his entire career. And uh, so I, I think that like and KG is almost floored by the intensity here. Right. He's like the KG talked to the Safties about how crazy it would be for someone to show him his line. Like right. uh, before a playoff game, he was like, that's never happened to me. And if that happened to me, I don't even know how it would react. Like if right. someone flipped the computer screen around and said like, they got you only with 17 points tonight, six rebounds, right. like fuck them. Like, and he sort of uses it to compel KD, like fuck these people, fuck everybody. You know, you're going to win this game. And I, I, it's just a great scene. And I, I mean, 
it's just so well performed and, and written yeah. as they said it's a scene that we wrote the most it's yeah. just it's shot so well with these like these these close-up you know it's shot reverse shot of close-ups but it just works so well and i mean it's, it's a fantastic scene and about as good as it gets in my book all right let's move on to uh most quotable quote uh which you know is probably going to involve a lot of cursing uh and and this one is because it's so talky you know there's so many people talking yeah. over each other they they had like a, apparently a ridiculous ADR session where they had like just an absurd amount of um, just an absurd amount of like dialogue was overdubbed and recorded again right, because yeah. because there's so much going on. They always wanted to make sure the little conversations going on in the corner of rooms that yeah. you might not actually capture the dialogue. They always want to have that in their scenes, yeah. which I think is great. Uh, so, but I, I've got I've got a, a couple here. So I've got. Come on, KG, this is no different than that. This is me, all right? I'm not a fucking athlete. This is my fucking way. This is how I win, which is right. the you know the scene we talked about. Uh, I've got Dina telling Howard after he tries to extend the olive branch, I think you're the most annoying person I've ever met. I hate being with you. I hate looking at you. And if I had my way, I would never see you again, which is yeah. the ultimate diss. But Howard smiles through it. He's like, she doesn't mean that. Like You know he doesn't really believe that. But that's I actually... Like yeah, I would jump on a quote even in that scene too. She pretends to punch him and he yeah. punches. And then she tells him, I don't even want to touch you. So basically what she's saying is that I wouldn't even want to touch you to punch you. Which yeah, is like I, really a pretty brutal thing to say. Yeah, that's next level. Next level, I have no, want to do nothing with you. Uh, I got the, the Doc River speech recorded for this film. Uh, nice. in, which, yeah. in which he, in his traditional horse, says, I need everyone in here to lock in. KG, look, KG, remember this. If you want to go quickly, do it alone. But if you want to go far, you do it together. We're like roaches, and you can't kill us. Uh, apparently, he used the roach thing for when he was coaching the Clippers at one point. He's used that in actual speech. Um, so I've got the, I never resurfaced anything when Arno <laughs> you know, accuses him, which I, uh, all the people I know from New York have said, that's like the most New York thing ever is like resurfacing your swimming pool. So it's like, that's such a classic line. Um, yeah. Got Damani, you know, he's just a fucking crazy ass Jew, uh, which is that. great. Love yeah. That. Which is, that's such a good, like coda. Like I know in the trailer that showed yeah. up and I was like, oh man, like that's, that's fantastic. Um, I got uh, Howard saying, that's a million dollar opal you're holding straight from the Ethiopian Jewish tribe. This is old school Middle Earth shit, which is just fantastic. What, what other what, you know, quotes do you have? I think I, I actually would stick with my one from the previous scene. I'm going to fuck the living shit out of you. It's so, <laughs> it's so profane, but it's, so is, it's, it's such an honest expression in the moment. In the context of the story, it actually works. And, and, and routinely, Julia is telling him how much she loves him, and he doesn't really ever say that. But that's not something he says, you know. Right. So that's, that's kind of like you said. That's his verbal, like this is how it's much his I way love of you. saying it. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, yeah. A lot of good quotes here. The next, the, the, almost the last category. If you could replace any character with Nick Cage, who would you replace, and why? So I'm going with Damani, and I think he plays Damani. His like the same script. Still, yeah, it's the same script. His name is still Damani. He's friends with NBA players. He's selling watches. Nick Cage famously is very tall. So he would sort of be like at their height. You could almost think like maybe he used to play or something. Like he's playing it totally straight. Nothing has changed. He just happens to be Nick Cage. That, that, that would be fantastic. It reminds me of Gary Oldman in your uh, true roommates. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, he's basically doing that. Like, he, but I don't know how well that would age in 2019, but I love it. Love the, love the boldness there. Um, I think if you, I, took out, if you took out him saying the N-word, you could actually yeah. do it. I think if you take out all the N-words, he, he could do it. 
I, I mean, the fact is, like, that kind of person exists, right? The, the person totally. that hangs around and, like, you know, probably identifies with a certain culture more so than his skin color. And, you know, yeah. I, I could see that being a part of the safety world, no doubt. Yeah. Um, I, I picked uh, Phil, so I picked the Keith Williams Richards character, the heavy. I just imagine Nick Cage sweating Howard throughout the whole film. He has that sort of, and especially as of late, he's played these really unhinged sort of, characters and, and i mean I, I just love anytime nick cage gets to play the villain think about face off basically he's doing his right. face off throughout yeah. this entire film but then of course you lose keith williams richard's amazing performance which is great right um I, I'm, I'm of the opinion you slide nick cage anywhere he's a, he's a multifaceted sure. actor. You think they yeah. should just remake this movie where he plays every role yeah uncut gems too yeah he plays the Julia cage. <laughs> yeah i mean he, he probably has in his in his private life but that's not here over there um Rewatchability, which one is this? So I got options. I got rent on uh, buy on Blu-ray, rent on iTunes. Maybe I'll catch it on HBO Stars or Netflix, or eh, I'm probably never going to watch this shit again. Where does this one cup gems fall for you? I mean, I'll, I'll, all the above, basically, literally all the above, because I think the first time I saw it, I was so stressed out by it. I was like, well, I'll probably never watch it again. And then it came on Netflix, and I was like, oh, this is great. And then, and then I'm probably going to end up buying it in multiple forms of media and yeah. <laughs> forget for like. Maybe I buy the Blu-ray, I, I lose it, and then I end up buying it on iTunes, then I forget that I have it on iTunes, I end up buying it on Amazon. Like It will be a movie <laughs> yeah. that I will, you know. I feel the same way. I had bought it immediately when it was available. Um, and I, I need to do more movies on here, this podcast that I dislike, I think, because like, I always end up doing this, like, oh, I, I bought it. But, uh, you know, it's it's great. It's I think it's like, you, like we discussed, it'll be a movie that people talk about you know, 30 years from now and, and end up being kind of talked about from this decade, the 2010s, as yeah, one of the ones people pull out from it. I mean, you think about social network as one that at the time people were like, yeah, that was good. But, you know, right. It, you know, it, of course it's good. Sorkin and Fincher. But now it's like, oh, wait, it might have been really, really good. That might be like a like all time classic. So yeah. I think this might have the same legs, but we'll see. Do you have any other things to say on Uncut Gems before we conclude? No, it's just fucking great. I'm so happy that we talked about it. I want to talk about it like all the time. <laughs> it's a movie I that I love talking about it. And uh, it's just, yeah, if you're if you're an anxious Jew who loves to gamble, <laughs> you can't think of a better movie than this. Yeah, it's really fucking rules. Uh, and now I've got to, to jump off and uh, go play some parlay bets in the Higgins, huh? All right, man. Let's do it. All right. Good talking, Dan. Take care. Later.